This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Today on Late Boomers, we are talking to Harvey Myman, a senior creative executive and producer in television and partner at Element 8 Entertainment. And I'm Mary Elkins. And I have to tell our listeners that Harvey and I have known each other, well, forever. <laughs> we went to grammar school together. And I've watched his career beginning with his work as the editor in charge of news operations at the Orange County Register in California, where he led the paper to its first Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the 1984 Olympics. I was at that Olympics. And after that, Harvey moved on to the entertainment industry and landed a job at ABC in comedy development, working on shows such as Roseanne and Home Improvement. And then at the Carsey Werner Mandebach Company, he helped bring Third Rock from the Sun and That 70s Show to the small screen and executive produced Men Behaving Badly, Townies, and the animated series God, the Devil, and Bob. And later at HBO, he helped shepherd Everybody Loves Raymond to television, which was on the networks for nine seasons, and our listeners can still watch. And now as an executive producer and partner at Element 8, as we said, his show, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, just debuted on PBS Masterpiece Theater. Welcome, Harvey. Say hello to our listeners. Hello, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. And how did you switch from the newspaper business to television? It, it's an odd jump. Um, but uh, when I reached a point in newspapering that I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do another newspaper, that next little tier of papers, the New York Times, and that were larger than the register at that point, I thought I should just do something different. Uh, and I lacked, frankly, the discipline or the confidence to, to sit down and write spec scripts. So I figured I would sell myself as an executive, somebody who could read and write English and manage people. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I started, actually, and was meeting with people in, this, in Los Angeles, I didn't know if I wanted to work in features or television. And more and more, I found myself gravitating toward TV, just as this very specific beast. And then when I got hired at ABC as a program executive, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they gave me my choice that I want to work in comedy and drama or drama. And I chose comedy because I figured I understood drama, that drama is really a truncated feature or actually an extended feature. Um, and comedy, particularly multicam, is a very specific form. So that's what I did. I did that for a chunk of years. And as went from ABC to the Carsey Warner Company, as Mary said, uh, which at that point sort of owned 
television comedy. Um, and it, it, it's a business in which you kind of get put into boxes. So I became the comedy guy, even though I love drama as much as I do comedy. Um, when I started working as a producer and independently, I could open up the possibilities. And when we formed Element 8, it was really to explore a different model. It's, it's built around international co-production. So we really don't deal by and large with the American networks and the US-based studios. Uh, we will with the streamers. Um, so we build shows in a different way and that we'll have, we'll have outlets, we'll have distributors. In the long-term we actually can maintain an ownership that you can't if you're working at a, a studio-based thing. Um, but it allowed us to be this scrappy little army. Uh, and that's why there's a, a fondness I have for actually Miss Scarlet that exceeds that which I felt on shows that I produced independently or with Carsey Werner or ABC, because basically it was just us putting on this little show and pulling this thing off and making it work. That's uh, so interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, tell our listeners, what a producer does, what an executive producer does, and what your particular forte is. I can. In a lot of ways, it's like being a managing editor again. It, it's sort of overseeing all these moving parts and making sure everybody's doing what they need to be doing and solving problems. And frankly, if I can do somebody's job better than them, be it a director or a DP, or an actor or writer, then we probably don't have the right person doing those jobs. So in terms of, in terms of our company, I probably focus most closely on the writing and the content and working with the writers um, and getting involved in the creative aspects, which I'm lucky I have a partner who is really good at sales and all those kind of things and worrying about all that. So I can worry about it a little less. That's, that's amazing. Fun parts. Um, the writer on this show, Rachel New, is an extraordinary writer and just a completely delightful person to work with. And everybody thinks because of the nature of the material, there was some source material for Miss Scarlet, and it was totally a product of Rachel. And that's it, fantastic. It came to us as a spec script at a time that nobody wanted to do period pieces, but we just loved it and we kept pushing. At one point, we thought about moving it to France and having her being, you know, Miss mm. Scarlet and Le Duc. Um, <laughs> and I was a, just going to ask you to tell us a little bit about Miss Scarlet and Le Duc. The, the market shifted and we found the appropriate home. Um, and we're completely delighted with it because it's, it's where it belongs. Um, Although we did shoot it in Ireland, which is a better place to shoot Victorian London than London. Um, so all the locations were in and around Dublin. Uh, it's uh, almost all practical, which means we would take over old houses, rebuild them, do what we need to do inside, um, and shoot it. There was very little, there's a little bit of backlot which for some of the street scenes, everything else, we were taking over old manor houses and uh, Scotland Yard was a girls convent school. 
that wow. was closed for the summer. Whoa. And the show, the show has such a rich look. It's, yeah, you know, I, it's um, it was very much like making a movie because it was six episodes nonstop, hmm. the one or two days. Um, How long did it take to shoot? About Fifty-one days, I think, for hmm. all the episodes. We we cross-boarded, which means you shoot. I don't want to get caught in the weeds here, but you shoot multiple episodes at the same time. So if you have three scenes in the same bedroom, even if they're in different episodes, you can shoot them all just to pick up the pace. Uh, that That's great for production and really tough on the actors. Our director, Declan Dwyer, and our photography, we had an extraordinary crew, just really wonderfully talented crews um, up and down the line. And they all kind of, because it wasn't a luxury cruise. Um, it was, it was not like producing The Crown, um, where they have nothing but money to throw at things. Uh, so we were very nimble, um, and uh, the people, the crews, really responded. You know, once once we we're up in production, and when I was in Ireland, it's about solving problems, getting things going, and then it's kind of just watching it happen and make sure nothing goes terribly wrong as you sit at a monitor. So really the fun stuff for me is all front loaded. It's getting our scripts great and, and mm -hmm. protecting all that and making sure it's well cast and we got a, the right director and all that sort of stuff. Your new show, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, is getting great reviews in the UK. And it's the reviews have started to roll out here and they're equally gushy, which is Great to see. I always try to remember that you can't just love the good reviews, but for some reason, the show only seems to get good reviews. Um, it's, um, I don't know if we're just exactly the right time for this. I think our cast is great. Uh, we explore issues in a, in a, an interesting and complex way. So there's quietly issues that there's not, not so quietly. There are issues of women's roles in, in society than in 1882. Um, but uh, issues of homosexuality are explored, which was a crime at that time. Issues of race are explored, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Some of the reviews were describing as very dark and the other ones called it very light. I, I would say that the jeopardy in the show is very real. But there's a there's a cheekiness to the tone, because um, we want to think all the way back of the sort of genre where you have a female detective in some relationship with a male copper detective. That's, moonlighting was probably the best. It was just smart and interesting. Um, but there's great there there's mysteries within each episode, and there's a long arc mystery that has to be solved. Harvey, your new show, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, is getting great reviews in the UK. To quote one, whether fans decide, decide to binge the entire season all at once on PBS Passport or watch on a weekly basis, the conclusion to the series arc is a satisfying reward for the journey. Seasoned mystery fans and those who only tune in to see women-led stories alike will find plenty to enjoy. Miss Scarlet and the Duke is well posed to become a cult hit in the US as well.
once the word gets out. End it's a quote. Great it's a great review. I love that review. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about Scarlet, Miss Scarlet and the Duke. Sure. The, the Scarlet and the Duke is came whole cloth from the, from the mind of the writer, Rachel New. It's not based on any source material. Uh, it's She loves mystery. She's a phenomenal British writer. It came to us as a spec script, something she had just written because it was her passion project. Wow. And um, the um, structurally, the six episodes, as, as the review pointed out, we have there are closed in cases every week, but there's a long arc and a bigger mystery to be solved and resolved by the end. So it, the intent is to satisfy those who want to be able to just drop in and watch an episode and those who want the satisfaction that comes with with hanging into a longer story. That's kind of neat. That's different than a lot of shows. I think so. And it, it's um, and I think when you hit the end of six, you'll want to know what happens next because it's not like, okay, I'm done with these people. Um, you you want to see Scarlet and uh, the Duke and, and the assorted other characters again and watch how their world builds out and develops. Tell us a little more about the show. I, I, I know that it's very strongly feminist and there's a number of subjects you cover and that the subjects were forbidden during Victorian England, which is the time frame of the show. Absolutely. I mean, Miss Scarlet is not an anachronism. She's Eliza Scarlet is a woman out of step with her time. She was raised largely by her father, who had been a Scotland Yard detective and then at his own detective agency. And um, she was trained by him to be a great detective. And that's what she wants. And the idea of a woman wanting a career at that point in history is 1882 was just not an option. And other other issues we explore of, of we have a gay character that figures in very prominently, but also very organically. It's not like we're trying to, to, to shoehorn in contemporary issues. It's the reality of what was going on. There's uh, issues of 1882, you're talking about issues of women's suffrage. You're talking about what women could and could not do. It was illegal and a jailable offense, as Oscar Wilde found out, to be a homosexual in the 1880s. Um, even though at this point in history, there were lots of people in color in London, of color in London, it was not a great place to be a black person. Um, so we're able to organically explore a lot of issues without having it seem like we're trying to bring our sensibility to a period piece. That had to have been a little hard to do though. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just have to praise and, and gush about our writers and our director and our actors. Yeah, they are all wonderful. And I was going to ask you a little bit more about the writer. I think you've touched on that before. But what else What else about her? Did you know this writer before when she came to you with a no, script? We deal with uh, UK agencies, just as we deal with American agencies. Mm. And um, someone says, hey, there's a script you might like. Or, or it could have been just a sample. We get, every day we get scripts to read from agents to introduce us to writers. But this was one we read and said, well, what's going on with this? And it's all like nothing. 
And so we want to find a home for this. We want to make this show. Um, was it love at first sight? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, there were changes that went along the way, but it was just, we completely loved it. It was like that, wow, wouldn't this be a great show? Shouldn't this show be on television? And, you know, we're, we're like dogs with a bone on projects we love. We don't take on things that we don't think really should be on television and that we can bring something to. Um, and we just kept hammering away to find outlets and find a distributor um, and, and make that all work. And we cobbled it together and just, when there's something we love, and I, I don't think this is different from any good producer, but when there's something you love, you just keep after it. We're not good at admitting defeat. Um, so we just keep knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. And some people got, I mean, Masterpiece completely got it and always adored it. UK TV was quick to jump on. Um, and other, then you pick up territories along the way and, and there was a company that was doing that. Um, so, you know, in some ways, the luckiest among us have jobs we do that don't really seem like we're doing it because we have to have a job. Yeah, and, beautifully, uh, beautifully put. And, and so what we do, and certainly on a show like Scarlet, that's how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. It's just been a pure pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of hard work and crises and problems and how are we gonna sort this out and how are we gonna make this work? Um, and how are we gonna get this shot because we don't have enough money and 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 Rachel again, um, she a star was better than no Rachel the writer. Oh 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 yeah, uh, she was really good at making hard decisions on a script, which sometimes means you're killing your babies. Mm -hmm. You know, and yes. just saying, okay, if we can't, if we, it's going to take a whole day to be able to dredge a body out of this river, and is there another way to handle that? And she just sat down and found another way to do it. Um, the stores were great. You know, um, Kate Phillips, Stuart Martin, and the rest of the cast were just terrific and easy. And that's not always the case. Um, gosh, when I was at Carsey Werner, our, our trademark was, was difficult actors. Um, <laughs> but the, our, our cast was really just great and professional and easy and and we were able to make it work because it was a bit of a tightrope because frankly if somebody had gotten really sick or wanted to lock themselves in their trailer or something like that we didn't have the the, the room to absorb that mm. it was a very fast moving train and also you shot the show pre-covid before the yeah. pandemic yeah, and how, do, how would you shoot it now or how would that complicate We're, everything as we in the as we are now exploring seasons two and three um we're figuring that out right now you know where we can safely shoot it who has lower covid numbers what kind of protocols are going on um as you remember from acting days there's like a lunch wagon not anymore now it's like everything's boxed Mm. Um, you know, how you handle hairbrushes, how you handle everything, how you create zones. I mean, the, the stage itself is like zone A. And so nobody's there, but 
your actors, your director, your DP, your first ADs, and everybody else's other places. Um, so you keep it very modular. Um, I mean, people are trying to figure this out right now. And then if there's one positive test, you're shut down again. Mm. So you can- better, you know, I'm a very optimistic guy. I like to think that heading into the summer, things will be better. I think the rollout of vaccines will make things better. But uh, so we're very conscious of where we're going to be shooting and how we'll absorb that both operationally and financially in the process. Hmm. Talking about some challenges, um, you mentioned, I believe, that you shot in Ireland. Um, What kind of challenges, in addition to this the sets and being shooting you know the sets were already there for you as buildings um but what kind of challenges did you face shooting there in regard to logistics and does the country have laws about casting local actors and crew and anything else that might have been a challenge well there it's when you work in the international co-production business it's there's all kinds of little workarounds and things you do. For example, doing it in Ireland, there are certain tax benefits that are tied to the to, to the spend. So when we could hire local Irish talent, that's a good thing for us. It's also a good thing for us because it means if we're hiring somebody who lives in Dublin, we don't have to put them up in a hotel. Yeah. You know, our stars, our leads were commuting from London and, and Glasgow respectively which was easy, um, but it, it's still the logistics of figuring that out um, and their costs associated with that. There are, I mean, we did our post-production in Ireland as well, but there are other, pl- some productions will do post in Belgium because they have tax credits. So it's really a kind of jigsaw puzzle to make it all work. I think um, Game of Thrones was shot in seven different countries. Oh. Something crazy like that. Um, so beyond that, Ireland was great. Um, the crews were terrific. The people were wonderful. We shot it in the tail end of summer and the fall. So our weather was great. You know, we weren't dealing with the bad parts of Irish weather because you pay a price for all that terrible beauty. It rains a Rain. lot. Um, but we had very little. Um, so we weren't much hampered by that. Uh, we could find all the things we, we need of, of, of extras and day players, of everything from hair people to wardrobe. You could find all that locally. Um, and again, exceptionally strong talent. Um, and it's become a very popular place to shoot. And they speak English. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we loved it. So. All our shooting was in and around Dublin. Uh, I was actually staying in Dalkey, which is a lovely little seaside area to the south of, of Dublin. Um, so yeah, it was great. Hmm. Like if it wasn't for the crappy parts of their weather, I could live there. Um, <laughs> what about the costumes? And tell us a little more about the, the sets and the production values. You know, we had an excellent production designer and art directors again, it's, we had to be very scrappy and and think about, well, do we really need 
to furnish this whole room if what we're really doing is shooting here. Um, our wardrobe people were, were excellent. They just had a factory who were creating the wardrobe that would reflect Victorian clothes. Design. You know, some stuff you could pick up if there was something special you needed, you could probably rent it from the Abbey Theater. But most of our stuff we, we created there. Mm. So lush, so rich. Everything just looked just beautiful. But it's like I, it was testament the, to, the, to the crews. They're really good. Mm -hmm. And Harvey, tell us a little bit about any upcoming projects. Is are you, It sounds like you're actively working on the rest of this, right? Well, we certainly hope to get subsequent years of Scarlet. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, we should know fairly soon. Um, well, you, is it picked up in the UK already? Well, but we have to make sure we've got the thing fully financed and worked out. Oh, um, it's funny, I got a note this morning from, from a manager who I hadn't talked to in years, but saw about Miss Scarlet and saying, so are you doing period stuff? Because I have some interesting stuff. We don't do period specifically. What we look for are projects that are not we don't want to be chasing anybody else's project. We like to find things that feel fresh in the environment. Um, mostly it is drama because that works better internationally, mm -hmm. but all different kinds and all different tones. Would we do period again? Yeah, sure. Uh, but it's not like that's our, our ballpark. Um, we like things that feel fresh and that we read them and it's like, oh my God, um, so we've got a, a basket of projects that we're looking for homes. Um, all those European, the MIPCOM and all the sort of big sales events are now kind of online. Uh, Patty Ishimoto, one of my partners handles all that. Uh, she's great at it. Um, but that's become kind of a different game. So we're constantly selling and meeting different distributors and figuring out how to do this and constantly reading scripts and things. Uh, we don't want to get where we're so overloaded. I've never liked producers that sort of acquire stuff and they do this, they're completely charming out of the gate and then stuff just sits and never happens. So if we take something on, it's because we think we can make it happen. We can bring something to it. Um, and we have the bandwidth to handle it. That's great because this one's really juicy. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really, really fun. And I'm, I'm such a fan of that era and I watch PBS so much. So I'm tuning in definitely. Looks like I have to say the Masterpiece Theater, which in fact, they originally going to run this last fall and they wanted to keep it to January because this is their 50th anniversary year. Mm -hmm. um, they are great and they know their audience. In fact, they may be the most specific audience on television in terms of when you show up for Masterpiece, you know what you're gonna get. And some stuff turns into Downton Abbey and some is stuff you may like less. Uh, but it's not like, what, that show? What is that doing on Masterpiece? Um, uh -huh. They really, they know their market. Um, and even as they build on it, but there's a quality to it. Um, so yeah, we're, we're we, they're great partners. Um, and they've been nothing but supportive every inch of the way on, on Scarlet. 
<laughs> well, on that note, we would like to thank our guest, executive producer Harvey Myman. Harvey, is there anything you'd like to add that we didn't touch on? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. I um, hope, hope the viewers enjoy it because we sure enjoyed making it. And I want to thank you guys for inviting me onto the show. You're well, so you. welcome and thank you for being here. And you guys can check out Miss Scarlet and the Duke on Instagram. Yeah, they've got their own handle. Just put in Miss Scarlet and the Duke. And we will see our listeners next time. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.